Hey, what's up everyone? David here. After a couple of weeks away, Pocket Mastermind is back. And on the first episode of 2021, I'm speaking about the power of the mind and the breath with Melo Calaco. Uh, with so many people managing challenging situations around the world right now, it's never been more important to learn how to manage our thoughts and our emotions. And in this conversation, we discuss how to tap into the power of the mind to overcome negative emotions such as anger and anxiety. And Mello shares a very powerful 90-second breathing technique that you can use anytime if you're feeling tired or overwhelmed uh, or just need to create a bit of space in your mind, maybe between meetings or whatever, that could really kind of make a big difference to you. Uh, I hope you enjoy the conversation and please remember to like, share, follow and subscribe um, to really help me to get a Grow Pocket Mastermind uh, to reach more people. Uh, with that, Let's get into the conversation. So the big question is this. How do ordinary people like us that weren't born into money create true financial freedom, take back control of our lives and live a life full of purpose, meaning and fulfillment? That is the question and this podcast will give you the answers. Join me and follow along as I learn, apply and share the strategies that the wealthy know and use that the rest of us weren't taught to create true financial freedom. My name is David Bell and welcome to Pocket Mastermind. Mello, welcome to the Pocket Mastermind podcast. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Oh, you're welcome. Um, really interested to talk to you because we're going to be talking high performance coaching. We're going to talk mindfulness um, and some all subjects that I'm really, really interested in and, you know, areas that probably a lot of us don't really focus on, right? We're not, we're not very big. Coaching still relatively new and a lot of us don't focus on getting external support um but before we get into kind of the, the the nuts and bolts of of what you do and how you do it be interested to learn a bit about the background that led you into the path of performance coaching and mindfulness coaching yeah sure definitely um it's been an evolution in progress obviously and just the learning along the way and uh, it's about three decades of uh, investment in myself in a way in many ways in my own self-development so I originally entered meditation about 30 years ago through um, through martial arts actually so through my martial arts I learned very quickly that the importance of the power of the mind was as important as the power of the body or the physical body so then I immersed myself in a lot of the meditation practices and um you know, Qigong practice and Tai Chi practice, also moving internal arts. Mm -hmm. And that led me on a, a three-decade journey of, you know, constantly searching inside and constantly working on that. Um, eventually, there was a period in my life around my 30s, I would say, where I was feeling a little bit lost and feeling a bit like I'm not sure what to do next. And um, so I went on a bit of a trip. I went on a, a cycling trip around the world. And nice. along the way, it was, a, it was a big journey of about 32,000 kilometers. And uh, along the way, wherever I could, I'd immerse myself in the spiritual practices and you know, stay in the monasteries in, in India and Nepal and you know, Buddhist monasteries and and temples and just really dive deep into the spiritual aspects of it the religious aspects of it and just sort of keep searching and keep looking and then 
over time, I, I guess I developed my own practice and my own you know, best of the West and the best of the East and put them together. And I share that in what I do now in my professional role as a mindfulness facilitator, high performance coach, and, um, you know, working with quite large companies. And I don't come from the boring clinical side of mindfulness. I come more from the you know, practical and applicable and, and make it fun and make it accessible to as many people as possible. And I work in a variety of, you know, spaces. I work with you know, corporate companies, I work with CEOs, executives, I work in um, at, with athletes, with elite athletes, I work in mental health clinics also supporting people right now, especially through this you know, difficult situation right now. So I love the variety and that makes me keep learning. You know, so for mm -hmm. me, I'm, I'm learning all the time and evolving and, um, and that's led me to where I am now, running my own um, mindfulness and performance coach uh, business and love every single day of, of my life of what I do. It comes through. Um, what, so what were you doing at the time before you kind of went off on the the round the world cycling trip, which sound, also sounds amazing? Um, yeah. What were you doing at that point? And then what was the catalyst that made you kind of take that break or, or leap? Because I think a lot of people might think, oh, I want to take a, a sabbatical or whatever you want to call it and feel quite scared about the, the concept. I'd be interested to learn a bit mm. about the process. I think I was just drifting between things, just drifting between jobs that weren't really satisfying. Mm -hmm. um, anything from you know, gardening to horticulture to just a variety of different things. No, none of them were really serving my purpose or none of them were really fulfilling me in any way. So I was a bit of a, a drift around things. And um, then you know, when I decided to do this um, this trip, then I immersed myself in all the things that I needed to do for this thing. And that's when I really learned my lessons on, on trust and self-belief. And um, originally there was actually six of us that were going to do it. So the six, six friends of ours that sat around the table and decided to do this uh, big, massive trip and cycle off-road, mostly off-road on a mountain bike around the world. And at that time, like I said, I was a bit not sure of what my next job would be. I was working as a horticulturalist um, and, yeah, sort of enjoying my work because I was outdoors, but there was no real fulfilment. And then the six of us, you know, planned this trip. And then one by one, unfortunately, they all backed out on me. So, you know, we were planning the trip and we are getting all the equipment. It was only till the last three weeks before the departure date. And my one buddy that we, you know, really trained together and got our bikes together, got our equipment together, got our camping things. And it was three weeks before. And he said, sorry, Melo, I can't do it. I'm, I'm scared. I'm, you know. Africa and things like that scared him. So then I was in the situation where it's, okay, I can actually bail now with the rest of my friends or I can go for it. And I think that was the catalyst, you know, really making up my mind just to go for it. And I'm so glad I did because I'm glad that I traveled alone because I could do whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted to do it at my own time and at my own pace. But I was never alone, to be honest, because I was always meeting people through the trips. And I think it would have been different if I was with a group of people. I would have met different people and you know, hung out with different people. So that was probably the catalyst where I really, the first lesson came before even leaving. The first lesson was you know, having that self-belief and trust, really big one is to trust my instinct, you know, trust my my gut instinct of what I want to do, you know, and really just go for it. And, and that served me well ever since. Always just, you know, I sit with a, a decision and I might meditate on it for a while or think about it and, you know, sit with it for a while. And then I'll trust my, my process and my decision-making from that and follow my heart 
um, along the way. So that's been probably the biggest catalyst. And along the way, there was probably a thousand situations where I had to trust myself. You know, I had to trust myself to make the right decision. Do I go left? Do I go right? Do I do this or do I do that? And that's really um, instilled in the work that I do now, like, you know, having that trust, having that deeper trust and that deeper knowledge and that intuition and instinct to do what I like to do. So, yeah. I'll tell you, it's really interesting as you look back on that and you think it's almost like the whole, the whole process was meant to be right. You get six people. That's the catalyst yeah. to the decision. You start, you have other people to plan with and you have other people to train with. And then as they drop off, it's kind of opened up as the the story is that for you mm. to then make the decision do you go alone or not but you know had you started alone you may not have ever gone through the whole planning and training process because where's that support kind of network? that's right exactly. the whole thing was built to to happen yeah that's right it was all part of the build up to it and, and teaching me the lessons along the way and um Actually, before I even left, there was one particular incident where um, I was doing some training runs on my bike. So I was going out and immersing myself in different landscapes and environments and temperatures. And and there was one particular storm forecast for where I was going. And I wanted to check out my storm tent that I just bought. I just bought a brand new storm tent and I had all the equipment with me. So I thought I'm going to head out. It was a long weekend. Little did I know it turned out to be a cyclone or hurricane. It was one of the worst storms that, that hit this particular area for decades. And I got caught in a nasty situation, a really bad situation yeah. where um, a tree was uprooted and actually hit my bike and it knocked me off my bike and it damaged my damaged myself. So I, I hurt my leg, I cut open my leg. But not only that, it actually damaged my bike and it damaged my brand new tent and my cook set and everything so I was, I was in this situation where I was actually out in pretty much the middle of nowhere getting on dusk and this storm was blowing in it was horizontal rain it was you know sub-zero temperatures were setting in and I had nowhere to go I had nowhere to shelter and that's where meditation came into to play I thought I've got nowhere externally to go there was limbs being felled there was trees everywhere before mobile phones this was so I didn't have a mobile phone and I was far from any town and then I remembered a particular breathing technique that my Tai Chi master had taught me to generate core temperature so to generate the Mm -hmm. core temperature in the belly and bring that up as fire so I, I did that and I was I was actually becoming hypothermic before that so my fingers were turning blue my lips were wow. turning blue and I sat there and I, I counted my breath and I started counting and then I was doing this technique <clears throat> and within about 20 or 30 breaths I actually started to feel peaceful I started to feel safe and meanwhile around me everything was chaos and going crazy but I started to feel safe and serene inside and that really was the 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 catalyst i guess of to really believe in the power of meditation and I, I actually meditated the whole night i meditated from dusk all the way through to dawn so 12 hours i don't know exactly what happened to me i must have dropped through different states of being and various states but i did wake up in the morning and the storm had subsided and i you know, got my cook set and made myself a little bit of some food and then continued on the journey but a really good analogy to many key aspects of life when there's chaos all around and there's disorder and you can't control that situation you can always control yourself through your breath you can always tap into yourself and that that really made me really believe in the power of the breath and i'm going to say a big statement here that you know if you can control your breath and control your psychology and physiology you can control anything in life anything 
absolutely anything. And that that also served me well through my trips and through my travels where I had you know, some dangerous situations in these countries and uh, just tap into my breath again, tap into my self-belief and my self-trust and then, you know, operate from that place instead of a reactive place so yeah all of these lessons were you know from the very very beginning you know, all the way through have taught me to be what i am now and and often when i'm running seminars and workshops even in the corporate space you know these stories come out and uh, i never know exactly what's going to come out but it's all very experiential you know i learned my lessons of trust i learned my lessons of resilience i learned my lessons of adversity i learned all these lessons from being on the road and mm. and that translates into the the real world that we live in now what did what were the biggest kind of takeaways you you gained from that trip and you, know, you talked about kind of merging the best with the east and west and what were the what were the real things you took away that you've now employed into your life and you now you know help other people with from that yeah. adventure um, curiosity is one thing like being really curious about people and cultures and you know, I was often living and staying with indigenous cultures. So I was often staying with the Maasai in you know, Kenya or the Dogon people in Africa or up in the Himalaya, hanging out up there with the Sherpas. And so just being curious about them and what makes them tick as a culture, what makes them tick as a person and their beliefs and things, and just being very open-minded. I think that was, you know, one big takeaway. And, and the generosity of people too, to be honest, the generosity and the kindness and compassion, especially in some of those you know, developing countries that we call them, um, you know, they just give you everything and they've got, they, they've got seemingly nothing, but you, you know, you'd roll into a town with your bike and the little children would follow you and come in. And then before you know it, you're in somebody's house and you the hospitality was just beautiful and you're drinking yak butter tea or whatever it is in the area. And uh, you know, that generosity, and kindness and compassion that comes from those cultures was a big teacher for me, you know, really in a way to, to realize, even though you don't have much wealth as in you know, financial wealth, but all those basic values of kindness, compassion, love, are far stronger. And, and I still you know, operate like that here, you know, gratitude practices and things like that. Even in the modern busy world, I live in Melbourne, Australia, you know, quite a busy buzzing town but I always have to have these reminders of you know these basic raw values you know and cultural cultural things so that was definitely a big takeaway in in many ways it's amazing I think um to see how people that we consider have not very much to live with kind of an abundance type mindset yeah. uh, is fascinating and and also how much those those kind of uh, populations are in touch far greater with with the world should i say mm -hmm. you know um, mm -hmm. than we are because we're so heavily distracted um and they have so much more understanding of and we're suddenly now we're discovering so many things that yeah <laughs> discovering <laughs> that uh, yeah, exactly. the ancient indians and, and uh, the egyptians and whoever else knew many thousands of years ago suddenly science is, is catching right. up and i find it i always find it very fascinating to to watch um, and a new discovery come along and i think well, i've read about that <laughs> um, yeah. from uh, from other sources um quite some time ago so it's, it's really interesting were there any practices that you took from the people that you met and you've learned that you kind of um you you use on a, in, in your own life or with other people 
Um, not specifically practice, but I think just the general, um, all of those lessons that I learned, but there's no specific practice. I, I, I blend a lot of what I do now in the, so I also work now in you know, mental health clinics, for example. I work with you know, psychologists and psychiatrists. So I, I just blend what I find is the best of the East and the West, but I very often come back to often Chinese medicine principles in many ways. So the meridian system is one system that I really you know, like to work with. I love listening. And when I'm working with my clients, I listen with different hats. So I listen with my you know, Western psychology hat or my, my Eastern philosophy hat or my Chinese medicine hat or Japanese shiatsu hat. And I just listen to all these things. And then I put together what I think is the best I don't want to use the word diagnosis, but, uh, but mm. the best treatment and the best um, modality to work with. I don't get too caught up in modalities. I don't get too caught up in you know, what, what system am I, am I using now? Just, it's quite holistic in many ways. So you know, in answer to that question, there's no specific thing that I took away. Um, but I really, when I was there at the time, would immerse myself quite deeply in it. You know, so, for example, you know, in the monasteries in Luang Prabang in Laos, you know, we'd go to the to the meditations and be with the young novice monks and you know, be learning the, the Buddhist scriptures and what they call the pujas, the meditations, and just really just go for it. And, you know, you'd be doing that for hours and hours on end and early in the morning, late in the evening and just, um, yeah. And also being with the young novice monks, you know, remembering that the, um, play is very important you know, the, the, the element of play and being jovial because they don't have much play time it's very serious they're learning many many hours of work so even just going to the mekong river and splashing around in the river and having fun is just play is such a, a great um connector in many ways of people and actually to be honest that's probably how i met most of and that's how i was invited into many homes often i'd come into a village or a town and I'd play with the children, play all sorts of games, you know, rock, paper, scissors or whatever it is and do these sort of games or kick the ball or in India play you know, cricket with sticks and stones and whatever it was. Um, and then that'll be a great um, icebreaker to sort of get into that culture. And then before you know it, the parents would come out and they'd want me to join them and come over for dinner. So it was a great thing to, that, that's one thing that I do remember is play is very important. And sense of humour also goes a long way. And even in um, challenging situations where there's been a fair few challenging situations along the trip, sense of humor and patience are two lessons that I learned, you know, very well. Earlier, and earlier you talked right at the beginning, you mentioned about, you know, how you learn about the power of the mind and through martial mm -hmm. arts. Maybe share a bit about the power of the mind, right? Because I think it's still, I know what we're, we're, I think we probably talk about it a bit more these days than we have done in the past mm. I, mm. but i still think a lot of, there's there's a lot of skepticism around how we do actually manifest our thoughts and i think it'd be interesting to get your take on on how powerful the mind is and then how do we how do we start to take possession of it right so that i think a lot of us are probably the result of our thoughts rather than the thoughts being the result of us if that if i articulate exactly. that well enough yeah exactly and that's right. And, and thoughts are just thoughts. That's all they are. It's whether you give them power or energy, um, that's when they become a problem. And, and especially right now, you know, 
in relation to the COVID situation that we're in right now, many people are living in this what if scenario, in this future scenario. What if I lose my job? What if you know, I can't do this? What if I can't provide for my family? And that essentially is like an anxiety in many ways. So, you know, creates anxiety. So taking control of those thoughts and, and understanding them, observing them is a, is a great practice to do. So instead of being in the what if, what if, what if, what if scenario, we have no control over that. We cannot control what happens tomorrow, the next day, the next month, the next year. We have no control of what the government decides, what the medical professionals decides. We have no control of that. What we can control is the now. What we can control is the present moment. What we can control is our reaction to it. So that's where I, through the mindfulness practices, I, I teach people and work with people to be observer of their thoughts to be an observer of what's going on in their mind and realizing that they have no power unless you give them power and um, you know, being present with what is you always have the resources to cope with what is you always do and that was one lesson I did learn along the way no matter what situation no matter where I was just believing that I always had the resources to cope with that situation right there, right now, not five minutes from now, not 10 minutes from now, not tomorrow, just right then. So I learned that very quickly and everybody does have that. Everybody does have that capacity to cope with. We have no way that we can cope with next week because it hasn't happened yet and it may not even happen. We have no power or control to do that. So taking more, um, being more observed, having a more of a softer approach to your mind, being an observer of your mind, you know, checking out what it is up there that makes you think like this and having a non-judgmental observation. And that's where the, the breath work can really help. So, you know, tapping into the breath and tapping into a deeper breath that's you know, deeper into the belly, for example, that helps to deactivate the stress response, the amygdala, which is one of the hijacking parts of the brain which puts you in that stress response that fight and flight response becomes very reactive and then you act in a reactive way but the more you practice mindfulness and meditation and do deeper breathing we actually activate the polar opposite of the stress response we activate the parasympathetic nervous system so it takes you out of fight and flight basically there's you you cannot do deep breathing and be in a stress state it's, the body tricks itself into that it activates what's called the vagus nerve then that activates the parasympathetic nervous system and then you start operating from the front part of your brain which is the prefrontal cortex and the prefrontal cortex is all about your executive function so it's all about your decision making your problem solving your planning your logical analytical thinking your emotional regulation so all of these are strengthened when we learn to you know, be with ourselves and sit with ourselves and sit in this meditation practice. And the more we activate the front part of the brain, the more we deactivate the back part of the brain and we actually weaken the reactivity. So if you're somebody that you know, stresses a lot and you know, gets very reactive, you actually get good at doing that. You get, you get, the more you practice something, the better you get at it. Come so, to learn, learn habit, right? At a exactly. All into by default. Yeah, that's right. And default mode is also a good word for it too. We actually you know, go into this default mode of stressing out and we get good at it. We actually get good at it. We actually strengthening our, our stress muscle to get stronger. The polar opposite of that is to strengthen your, your prefrontal cortex and strengthen your relaxation response to get stronger. And that way there, you, know, you can operate more mindfully. You can be more present in what you're doing. You can train your focus and attention to be doing the thing that you are doing at the time. And the research says that we are the happiest when we are on task. 
when we're doing that thing that we are doing and not thinking about the future or catastrophizing about the future and not flicking off or ruminating about the past, but, you know, about being very present. So, you know, that's what I teach a lot of people in my teaching. So I teach the, the formal practice is what it's called, where you do the breathing exercises, whether that's 90 seconds, whether that's two minutes, whether that's five minutes or 10 minutes, it trains your open awareness and helps you to deactivate that stress response and the other practice i teach which um, is a very big practice of mindfulness but not a lot of people talk about is what's called the informal practice and the informal practice is doing all those other ten thousand things that you do in the day and you usually do them in default mode but you do them more mindfully so for example you know waking up in the morning having a shower and just really having a shower and enjoying the aromas of the shampoo and the temperature on your back and all these sort of things, or sitting down and having a nice breakfast or a nice meal and not eating in front of the computer. So the more we, we do these things, we can train ourselves also to be focused on what we're doing. So it might seem quite minor to do these things, but it's actually all of it is attention training. You know, so you know, catch yourself if you're eating in front of the computer all the time, if you're eating in, in a rush, and the more you do these things, you, you actually will enjoy life more fully to start with. But you're also training your, your prefrontal cortex and you're training your brain to stay on one thing and not be distracted. And that's quite a powerful practice, often underestimated, actually. Yeah, I think I come up, I heard it, probably Alan Watts or somewhere, a quote mm -hmm. from, from a Zen master who said, when you eat, eat, and when you sleep, sleep. And yes. the, the, other, the other person said, well... Isn't that what everyone does? And the Zen master said, is it? Because we don't generally eat when we eat. We're doing something else. Sometimes we're even walking around and we're rushing from place to place or we're working or we're talking, we're arguing, all of these things that we do other than eat. And really, you know, these are kind of some of the practices that I've kind of employed into my life in the last yeah. couple of years probably is to try and be more mindful like you say and it's very powerful yeah. because it helps to build concentration and exactly. calm um if you're brushing your teeth you're brushing your teeth not worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow or what's the rest of the day going to be like or whatever end of the day you're at um really That's really right. really really powerful and i think a lot of people think of kind of mindfulness and meditation like you said is a formal sit down and do a mm. practice but actually what a lot of the eastern cultures teach is is almost meditating all of the time because you're creating a level of consciousness that you don't otherwise have exactly and that was one particular monastery i stayed in in vietnam it was all about that it was actually a, a monastery about mindfulness and it wasn't a silent retreat you could speak it wasn't a vipassana where you, you can't talk at all this was a you could talk little words but only about the thing that you are doing mm -hmm. so for example if you're chopping the vegetables getting ready for dinner you could only talk about the vegetables like oh wow how beautiful this carrot looks today or you know the color of my tomato is just amazing so you could only talk about that when you're having your dinner or lunch or breakfast you could only talk about the aromas of the food and the flavors and the tastes even when you're washing the dishes you could only talk about you know, the temperature of the water or whatever. So it was really hard, to be honest. It wasn't easy. I, bet it is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you're washing the dishes, who's talking about washing the dishes? You know, really, your mind's like thinking about all the other things you have to do. But after about a week or so there, I really started to enjoy every single thing that I did 
much more fully and really like I enjoyed the temperature of the water on my hands. I enjoyed chopping the vegetables and just trained me to really be mindful of every single thing. And then I remember afterwards, it was about three or six months later after that particular monastery, I went up to the high Himalaya and I was camping in tents actually on a, on a big trek in a country called Ladakh, which is um, North Indian Himalaya. Mm -hmm. And it was my turn in the camp to actually wash the dishes that night. And it was minus 35 degrees wow. up there. It was freezing cold. And I think we we're at like 4,000 meters or 3,800 meters of cold. But I do remember vividly right now and still do remember the feeling of that hot water on my hands while I was washing the, the camp dishes. And I just loved, I didn't want it to stop. I said, I said the next night, I want to do the dishes again. It's my turn. It was such a nice feeling just to feel the temperature and feel the heat in that cold environment. So it made me appreciate everything like you know from the moment you wake up in the morning and you know, these days we live in a very distracted world we have our iphones on us all the time we wake up in the morning we check the first thing and we scan what's going on you're no longer in your bedroom waking up you're already like oh my god what do i have to do at work or you're checking some brain dead social media feed or you know something like that so you're already waking up in a reactive way and I know a lot of people now when they you know, they go for a walk, for example, or a drive or a long drive, instead of having headspace and you know, they plug in a podcast or they plug in something, they just want to do two things at once to maximize the time. So it, don't get me wrong. We're on a podcast channel right now. It's yeah. good to listen to but, a podcast. But you, but... Need to, you need to have separate time where your brain's not distracted. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So, and what we're doing is we're training ourselves to divide our attention by doing that. The more we do these things, you know, doing one thing and doing another thing at the same time, we, we're training ourselves to be divided, which causes stress, which causes overwhelm, which causes all these, you know, overstimulated states of mind. And that's where the mindfulness and the meditation practice can really help you to bring it back to one thing, bring it back to that one single thing, whatever it is, walking, listening, talking, cooking, all these simple things that you can do. So really the meditation practice is off the mat, so to speak. The meditation practice is life is meditation, like you said. Yeah. And it's not just those 10 minutes that you close your eyes and you know, do that meditation practice. And that's what I, I teach. And a lot of people think, wow, that's great, actually, just to take on. And I often get them just to do one thing because you can't ask them to do everything. Mm -hmm. I say, just choose one thing and do that more mindfully for the next seven days. And um, so my, my not negotiable habit that I do personally is I take a morning walk and that's, that's not negotiable. I do that every single, every single day. And then after my morning walk, then I anchor my meditation practice to that. And then after that, I, I have a healthy breakfast. So it's a great way to do one thing. And then once you get that one thing right, then anchor another thing to that one thing. And then you can keep anchoring things to that one habit or ritual that you've created yeah, I love that. And I think James Clear talked about that in Atomic Habits, if you've ever read that book. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the habit stacking. Find something that you do that's positive and then add something onto that. Where where we try where where we often fail is trying to take habits away and remove things we need to replace rather than remove because what do you mm -hmm. replace if you remove something, you leave a void and there can't ever be a void. So you end up filling it with something else by default. So you, you've got to think of uh, what's going to serve me, what's going to serve me well. Mm. Uh, and yeah, I, 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 the whole continuous kind of mindful way of living is, is, it delivers so much power. I think we've trained, we've kind of taught ourselves to 
compartmentalize everything into good and bad far too much mm -hmm. so we, judgment yeah and so we live our lives trying to avoid what we've considered to be bad and boring and so we're hopping mm -hmm. trying to hop from one great event or feeling to the next to the next and we end up completely unfulfilled because there's no end to it and we're missing yeah. all of the stuff in between and I believe that that's why as we get older we seem to think that time goes so much faster is because actually we're just leaping from one thing to the next and we're not actually stopping to as they say smell the roses yeah and what's what's wrong with the spaces between we exactly. always want to fill every space I mean I often ask the question you know who wants more time and everybody puts up their hand and says yeah I want more time as soon as we get more time we fill it up with stuff you know, you might be at a cafe waiting for somebody or you might be at the bus stop or the train stop. First thing you do is take your telephone out and fill it up with fodder. You know, we finally get time and space and we just want to fill it up with everything. So I'm a big one on, on creating space and really, you know, even space between stimulus and response. You know, so there's a stimulus, there's something that happens to you and then you have a response to that. And if we can create space between those two things, we can then act mind more mindfully and much more you know from a deeper more value-based place instead of being reactive so if i was to write a book it would probably be called something like the space between yes. you know there's, there's a, there, there is a space between things there's there's even a space between your breaths for example yeah. you know you have an in breath you have an out breath but there's a space between those breaths and that's also a really interesting space to observe that there's actually space between the breaths and a lot of people aren't comfortable in that space mm -hmm. a lot of people aren't comfortable when there's quiet or when there's silence and they want to fill up that space with everything so it's a, a really interesting um metaphor for life because people aren't comfortable on the top of their in-breath quite often so if you take an in-breath and you hold that space it can relate to tight chested and stress people have that you know, emotional response to that or that physiological response so they don't like it and then you know then they need to get more comfortable in that space so they can actually you know operate in a much more comfortable way so it's a the breath is often a an indicator of where you're at and if you get more comfortable with your breath get more comfortable with the spaces between you know feel the full out breath and let go on your out breath reinvigorate on the in breath and be comfortable in the spaces between you're starting to take control of your physiology and psychology actually yeah i love the i love the concept of the spaces but the spaces between and if we can build you know even in music it's the space mm. between the notes that makes it music because if it was just one continuous sound it yeah wouldn't, it wouldn't be mozart right there wouldn't be there wouldn't you wouldn't be able to hear the melody there wouldn't be one it would just be a continuous noise so there has to be there has to be space and i think if we can yeah. learn to identify that space and like you said you know the space between stimulus and response and victor frankel wrote about yeah it. yeah it's very that was very that was a very powerful thing for me because then you start to realize that you start to take ownership of how you respond to stimulus and it's not the stimulus mm -hmm. that causes your feelings right so we look for other things and other people to make us happy yes uh, the entire universe actually exists within our own brains our own mind and we get the choice you know the great example i've used before is you may look out the window and say oh god it's raining and the farmer may look out the window or someone else may look out the window and say thank god it's raining it's the same yeah, yeah. same weather system the same things happening but your expectation of your your you know i think tony robbins talks about you know your model of the world 
isn't yes. the life conditions or what you're experiencing now and that's where the discomfort comes in yeah that's right tony robbins says something like swap expectation with appreciation and just really appreciate and as you said victor frankl says that uh, in that space between there is a choice that's where you have that choice of, for your freedom and einstein puts it really nicely with that space where he says i think 99 times i find nothing i stop i swim in silence and the truth comes and it's that that's that silence that's you know pretty much the alpha state of being when you're dropping from that beta thinking brain, which is always thinking, 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 planning, problem solving. And if you drop down into the alpha state, that's where creativity flows. That's where new inspiration comes. That's where new ideas come from. And Einstein just puts it so nicely in that, in that statement. I really like it. Yeah. So true. I think you, you think how many, how all the inventions, everything that we see before us didn't, mm -hmm come what they didn't come from someone's mind who was distracted they weren't looking at their phone they were think they would the 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 idea came for whatever it is in the microphone that i'm using and the mm -hmm. and zoom and all of these things the ideas come when the mind is quiet not when it's occupied doing something exactly. else and chasing the dots on the screen yeah and that's where people you know they might come out of the shower or the bathroom and they come out and say oh wow i just got this great idea what do you think of this because they've actually stopped yes. they've got out of the busyness of their mind and they've actually stopped and you know, many great ideas have been born on the toilet seat i'm sure <laughs> it's like it's that space basically it's just stopping so now because people can take their phone with them but in the, in yeah the that's true like, i think that's what, what you just said about the shower and i've said this as well is the shower tends to be the the only the place where people have fewer distractions and fewer devices because you most yeah. people don't take their phone in the shower obviously some do but most people don't take their phone in the shower and that but that's where the ideas come because you're not distracted it's that's why and also you know when you're falling asleep and people go, oh i've got suddenly an idea comes it's because you've switched off from everything else and your brain's slowing down yeah that's that's what they call the alpha state of being that from from beta beta is their thinking and logical analytical thinking and then when you drop down into that alpha state that's when creativity starts flowing then you drop, drop down to what's called the theta state slower frequency of the brain that's where you get deeper wisdom inspiration and ideas so they don't come from that busy mind because there's just no capacity to think of anything and that's exactly what happens when you're falling asleep in those seven or so minutes when you're falling asleep you go from that busy brain mm -hmm. and often people you know have their telephone by their bedside they're still stimulated right before bed and then you get that funny little hypnic jerk that might you know you get that funny jerk or you drop it off a cliff yeah yeah exactly and that's basically the body's way of you know slowing down and then the mind slowing down and then in that space there you get those weird visual type things and ideas and yeah, that's a great place to swim around in and explore a little bit you know what's going on in there and that, that's where meditation takes you in many ways and that's often a big byproduct of you know when i do the meditation work and i work with ceos and executives and directors of companies who are very busy they're making thousands of decisions per day and you know, when they finally stop and slow down they're just a totally different people, but they actually, they all say to me, oh, Mello, I had the best night's sleep last night. It's the best sleep I've ever had because they've actually downloaded their brain throughout the day in the meditation. They've uploaded all those things that they need to store and they've got rid of what they need to do. So when they go to bed at night, they've got a clearer mind and they can actually fall asleep and not only fall asleep, but they can stay asleep. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the 
the best byproducts of meditation practice really in this busy insomniac world that we live in you know this busy overstimulated and a lot of the especially like i said the executives that i work with they say oh man i haven't slept like that for a decade i haven't slept like that for so long so it's a, it's a great um byproduct of meditation is there um for anyone listening now who's kind of really interested in in the conversation so far are there is there a simple breathing practice that's that somebody could do you know one thing i uh, something i think about and i try and employ myself because you do lose the consciousness of the breath mm-hmm. is throughout mm-hmm. the day i try and remember oh how am i breathing and then take control of it again and slow it down and you can even i found that you can even do this with exercise you default if you're mm-hmm. i cycle quite a lot and mm-hmm. you find that you could catch yourself panting and actually you don't have to pant you can take control of the breath and slow it right down as if you were just sat you're still exerting yourself but the breathing mm. doesn't have to and you can then lower your your own heart rate through exertion by taking hold of your breath but is there That's some right. is, there a, is there a simple process that somebody could use you know when they're sat at home or they're at work maybe they've had a stressful meeting or uh, yeah. they're just in a call or whatever that, that somebody could do to kind of yeah. take back control yeah. of that breath in the corporate space, especially, I, I teach a lot of 90-second breath breaks, I call it. So just stopping for 90 seconds. Because a lot of people think that meditation has to be 10 minutes or 20 minutes and it has to be this. So therefore, they don't do it because they don't have the time or the capacity. Um, but if I said to them, you know, if you stop for 10 minutes, your next three hours will be productive. You know, you might get them over the line. But everybody has 90 seconds. You know, everybody has 90 seconds to stop. So what I would say to them is, and you know, for the listeners out there is if you're feeling a bit scattered or you're feeling a bit rattled or you've got too many windows open on the computer and you're you know, all over the place, just stop, totally stop, you know, pull away from the computer and just follow your breath. So you might choose to say in your mind, I'm going to follow my breath for 10 cycles. I'm just going to follow my breath for 10 cycles. That's all I'm going to do. I have to do anything else. And you can close your eyes and just follow your breath and rest your awareness on where you feel the breath the most. So if it's in the nostrils, rest your awareness there, in the throat, in the chest, in the belly, and just rest your awareness there. And that's all you have to do. If you want to add a layer to that, because some people get distracted and they start thinking about things again, you can count your breaths. And what I encourage with counting, there's different methods. There's what's called box breathing. There's a whole lot of different methods. But the one that I think is the simplest and the easiest to do is to make your out breath longer than your in breath by a couple of notches. So, so for example, if you take an in-breath and it's one, two, three, four, five, six, out-breath will be eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. So your out-breath is longer. So that prolonged out-breath mm-hmm. will do what I said before, activate the parasympathetic nervous system it'll activate that it'll just take you out of reactivity instantly and you can do it within three breaths to be honest you don't need 10 but you know three breaths and just to do that but a lot of people when they stop they start thinking about too many other things and so so that's where i add the counting element so if your in breath is six add two to that if your in breath is 10 add another two to that so as long as your out breath is longer than the in breath then you'll be surprised on how quickly you can change your physiology and just reset and just you know go for it again so it doesn't take long so i call it the 90 second breath break a really powerful practice and i do them myself so if i'm in between seminars if i'm in between workshops or in between clients i'll stop and i'll you know finish off what i'm doing 
and then I'll do a little breath break. And before I'm going into a meeting or my next seminar, I'll do that just to reset, refocus, and then I'll be fully present for the next session or for the next client. And it's a really simple practice, you know, really simple. Really nice. I like that. And and so, mm -hmm. yeah, like you say, so simple and you can easily fit that into most gaps in the day, right? Between, especially kind of like between a meeting. It's great to yeah. when you're going from one topic or one conversation or one or one situation whatever to another to draw exactly. a line to and then get your brain ready to do something else and you know these days so many people working at home natural mm. breaks natural breaks of going between meeting rooms or wh whatever don't tend to happen and we find ourselves stuck in front of the the laptops continuously and we've got to remember to create those breaks otherwise yeah my parents used to say your eyes will go square <laughs> <laughs> well don't laugh because i was actually um i was coaching a surgeon recently i've been working with a surgeon and, and he was telling me that um there's some new research coming out because of this zoom fatigue and you know we're pretty much in front of the computer for eight or ten hours a day or more and we don't leave the screen like you said in a normal environment you'd get up and you go for a walk whether it's the same building or whether it's a different building so what we're doing is we're not getting that depth of vision anymore we're not actually like looking up and looking at trees in the distance or looking at things away. So we're actually our optical muscles behind our eyes are getting actually weaker already from like six or eight months. And you know, there's some research around coming around that. So I encourage people, you know, get up, go out, even if you have to go to the letterbox and check the mail or you know, walk around the block with your dog just to get that depth of field and you know, train your eyes to you know, look in the distance and look further. So there's a lot of these environmental problems that are coming out of this you know, situation from working from home. And you know, often the edges get blurred between am I working or am I home or am I you know, overstimulated is one big problem because people are working later into the evening and um, they have their laptop with them all the time and they can be working till 10 o'clock. One particular client I'm working with actually CEO of a company he what he does now and i didn't suggest this by the way this was his idea he actually to separate his work from home he gets his laptop and his computer and all his files he puts them in a plastic tub nice. and then he closes the plastic tub he puts it in the garage outside and locks the garage door and gives the key to his wife and he says don't let me do any more work so it's a you know a big barrier it's a big way to do it but that's what he needed to do for a while and i don't say you need to do that but anything that's going to separate you close your computer put a towel over it you know close the door whatever you need to do because most people are going to bed in this overstimulated state and then that's you know, setting themselves up for you know, bad mental and physical energy actually so their performance is um upset from that so yeah it's uh, all these interesting things coming out <laughs> well it's, it's interesting that you say that about the because it's not really a uh, an issue i'd considered actually a lot of people not leaving the house all day that how mm. far you see your depth of vision it, it, yeah it's going to be very very limited like you say most of it's directly at screen at best it's probably the furthest wall away which is not yeah far, right so you know going for the walk and we'll come on to uh i think you've touched a bit on your morning routine already mm -hmm. but we'll come on to that in a second because that could be an opportunity to you know like with your walk for example you get to yeah. go around and 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 get get a, get a mental and a, and a visual break absolutely yeah absolutely so before we do go on to what your morning routine is and yeah. recommendations and everything else uh any other kind of quick tips and advice for for anybody listening now um if they're interested in in what we've discussed mindfulness or anything what, what would you suggest 
I suggest just do the practice. You know, really, like there's, you know, there's so many great books. I have a pile of books behind me, which are great. There's so many great things. But it's like reading, for example, on how to run a marathon. You, know, you can read on how to run a marathon. You can read how to get fit and how to do all the things. But unless you start doing the practice, you don't get the benefits. So I really recommend to start small and just, like I said, 90-second breath break, start doing them, then build up a 10-minute practice potentially, whether you have to listen to an app or whatever it is that gets you started to have listen to guided meditations is great. I have a few guided meditations on an app called Insight Timer. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. I've heard um, of it, so but I've not used it, yeah. Yeah, some free meditations on there. A great place to start is a, what's called a body scan meditation. The body scan is the body is the perfect sort of indicator of how you're feeling. You know, hunched shoulders means you're probably stressed or palpitations or you know, anxiety type feeling. So the body is a really good portal to the mind. So with a body scan meditation, it's a really good place to start to potentially, let's say, do a body scan meditation a few hours before bed, then you can really relax all the muscles or relax the mind and then you'll, you'll have a better sleep. But whatever way to do it, just, just start and do some practices. And, and not only the formal practice, that's what I'm talking about, the formal practice, but also those informal practices as much as you can. Choose one thing and just do it more mindfully and then we'll anchor other things to that as we go. But it's all, it's all really in the practice, practice, practice. And, and also let go of the... Um, um, you know, sort of stereotypes of what meditation is. A lot of people think it has to be cross-legged and, you know, dreadlock hair and all that sort of stuff. And they still have that. I often, in my sessions and seminars, I, I ask, you know, a raise of hands who has that preconception and 90% still have it, believe it or not, even in this modern world of mindfulness that we live in. So let go of that. It doesn't have to be that. It can just be some downtime. It can just be walking even, like you know, having a walk in the park and just being more present with that. So that's the that's the main thing. And, and right now, actually, being more present, that just reminds me of you know, also working from home. And I know, you know a lot of countries and or here in Victoria anyway, there's a lot of homeschooling going on and, um, and it's causing a lot of stress. And I've been reading a lot of data and research around that. And my best advice for that is be where you are. So if, if you're with the children, like really be with the children for that two hours or whatever it is you need to be. The worst thing you could do is be with your child and be thinking about the thousand other things that you have to do and stressing out about them. It's not fair on your child and it's not fair on yourself and it's not fair on anybody really. So being where you are, being present with the, with the children, then after when you finish that, be present with your work. And that's you know with everything in life, be where you are and you really train your attention to be where you are. If you are walking, if you are riding your bike, riding a bike can be a meditation on its own. You know, if you're following your breathing, you know, swimming can be a meditation. You know, walking can be a meditation. So, yeah, it doesn't have to be cross-legged and incense in the background and, and let go of that preconception. Please, please, please. <laughs> and also, you know, the other thing, one thing I'd add to that is don't try and chase some kind of outcome. Because then you end up it doesn't become a it doesn't become a meditation anymore. It becomes a striving of some sort, and I think people wait for this kind of golden light epiphany or something <laughs> from from meditating. And uh, yeah, it's just uh, trying to grasp is not the point of yeah. meditation. It's just to be. 
Yeah, a lot of people think it's this you know, absolutely blissed out state where there's no noise, there's no sound, there's nothing. But you know what? It's the opposite at first when your mind starts, as soon as you stop, your mind starts racing and you start thinking of all these things and then they, they don't continue because they think, well, that's not good. But you know, really you know, letting go of that and having that open curiosity of what your mind is busy with. So when thoughts do pop up, that's okay. Let the thought pop up. Don't attach to it. Just observe it and let it go. And then the next thought will pop up just observe it. Maybe you could label it at, at best and say, okay, that's a planning thought or something. Let it go. And the more you do this practice, the more those thoughts and the spaces between the thoughts will become bigger. So then you'll you know, start observing this pattern of thoughts. You know, we have like, I think 80,000 thoughts per day or something like that. And of them, many of them are negative and of them, are, many of them are recurring thoughts. Mm -hmm. So once we start observing our thoughts and what our mind is busy with, then we can sit longer in with ourselves and in that space so yeah please let go of that blissed out um golden light sort of feeling and it, it can feel like that sometimes to be honest you know just being is nice just being just being with your breath just being quiet just being anchored in yourself and you know i can meditate in an airport for example i could meditate anywhere on the train because i can internalize quite quickly now after 30 odd years of practice but just being with yourself is a nice place to be Love that. So mm. let's, let's let's talk about your morning routine. What does that look like? Yeah, well, I touched on it before. So morning walk. Um, so I get up quite early and I do a, a morning walk. I live luckily on the coast here, so I do a bit of a beach walk normally. And the reason I do that, to be honest, the reason I started that morning walk is because I, I read something somewhere that if you get up in the morning and you get sunlight first thing in the morning, you, you know, behind your eyes, it actually sends a message to your body to then start producing serotonin. So then your body kicks in with a serotonin aroused feeling. And then around 15 hours later, then it stops reducing serotonin and then the melatonin kicks in. So basically, by getting up in the morning and walking will set up your circadian rhythm. Mm -hmm. So then you'll have a better night's sleep because at night when the sun starts dipping, your body will naturally produce melatonin and you'll have that nice peaceful sleep. So that's where I started it about 25 years ago now and I've stuck to it ever since. It's my, it's my not negotiable. So that's what my morning routine is. Then after some time, I thought I'd anchor my meditation practice to that. So then I find a nice rock if it's nice weather outside and sit on the, the rock at the beach or I'll find a park or if it's raining, I'll come back and do it at home. And then I'll, I'll do a, a meditation practice for around 20 minutes. And that can vary. Sometimes I feel like a moving practice. So I might do a Tai Chi type practice or Qigong type practice. Sort of I like to be flexible with that. It doesn't always have to be seated. And then after that, so now I've anchored a third thing to that, like I said before, and that's a healthy breakfast. So I'll come home and I'll make myself a healthy breakfast, whether it's a smoothie or whether it's a cooked breakfast, depending on the season. And that's three wins that I've had before the day's even started. So, you know, and I, and I own that. That's my time. You know, that's for me. And when I'm walking, by the way, I don't take my telephone. I don't take podcasts. I don't take anything. It's just, just for me because I could easily hijack my time with other people's stuff and I could start make, writing texts and things like that. Yeah. So I own that you know, chunk of time in the morning and that sets me up before the whole day starts. Cause then I may get you know, busy and you know, busy in the reactivity of the work that I do or the seminars and workshops. So that's my morning routine. And I've stuck to that for over 25 years and um, never broken that. Nice. Very, very nice. Mm. Um, three books that you'd recommend and why they, they can be linked to what we've been talking about or just random 
wow three books oh just three oh yeah, wow that's hard. hard um an old fight an old favorite an old you know philosophical if I gave you 10, you'd probably struggle so <laughs> <laughs> yeah i know um paula quello is still one of my favorite the alchemist as an old an oldie but a goodie i just love the alchemist as a older book um uh, more sort of fiction non-fiction would be i love shantaram I'm not sure if you read Shantaram no, about India. A lot of it's about the slums of India and um, you know, really interesting reads. It's a really thick book, really beautifully written and uh, powerfully written. So Shantaram would be on that thing. And then um, uh, The Book of Joy by the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu, which is actually a a conversation between the two of them, which is quite fascinating. Amazing. And I haven't put any mindfulness books in there, but uh, I'll throw one in. I'll throw one in for good measure. One of my favourite sort of easy ones is uh, Dan Harris. Um, it's called Ten Percent Happier, and uh, Dan Harris was an, an anchor man, um, as in a newsreader mm-hmm. in the US, and he had a, a meltdown on on stage so on national television. He had a, a total meltdown, and the reason I like it is because he he talks about meditation from a skeptical point of view. Actually, he bags it and and he says, you know, Deepak Chopra and Eckhart Tolle and all these people. He he, he makes fun of it, and you know, his books about being. I think the title of or the subtitle is meditation for fidgety skeptics. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's good. It's a good one. Just a bit more fun in a way. I think they're good. They're, they're definitely very good routes in books written from that perspective because yeah, if you, are, yeah. If you do feel a little bit skeptical, then read it from that perspective rather than what you might consider to be the more woo-woo angle. Um, and uh, you've got to find you've got to find a way of getting into this kind of thing in a way that relates to to you as an exactly. individual. Like yeah, exactly. often when i refer books to my clients i'll often see what character they are so if they're much more yeah, engineer for example or a scientist or you know, I'd, I'd, I'd point them towards a more researchy type book that talks about the research about meditation or if they're a bit more esoteric then i'll point them towards Eckhart Tolle, for example or the power of now or things like that so it's not a one-size-fits-all but often the fun part of something like dan harris is a great segue into sort of because many people are skeptics too so coming on that angle is quite good yeah i like that um three people that you'd follow or listen to again could be in this sphere it could be in another sphere whatever oh, wow. podcast yeah, yeah. or you know social channels or whoever mm. yeah 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 um probably one person a high performance coach that i that i follow and like is um brendan bouchard mm-hmm. um in the states uh, some he's coached the likes of you know Oprah winfrey and you know people like that so i really like his work it's quite it's quite um yeah quite strong and and, and quite fun um I don't, to be honest, I don't listen to a lot of podcasts, but I have really been enjoying um, a guy called Nick Brax. Actually, he's a, a Melbourne guy here, um, actor, and um, he's a he's a mental health advocate actually at the moment. And he's got some really interesting um, podcasts and really interesting um, uh, guests on there that I really like. And I've been really enjoying those conversations. So Nick Brax, uh, the podcast is called Move Your Mind and really some great conversations and um yeah follow other ones uh, the other 
suggestion I would say is what I said before, the Insight Timer app. Mm-hmm. You know, the Insight Timer app is, um, you know, so there's some great stuff on there, actually. There's podcasts on there. There's um, talks about meditation. There's meditations themselves on there. And the thing that I personally use it for is there's a timer on there, as the name suggests, and you can actually use it as a timer. So that's the three that come to mind off the top of my head. Nice. Uh, mm. Now, you've mentioned three habits already, so I'm going to see if there's another three. Any three other habits that you've adopted in your life and maybe outside of your morning routine that yeah yeah um i'll go the opposite end so the the nighttime routine Mm -hmm. so then i i I make sure at a certain time that i turn off all my buzzers and beepers and notifications and all my work-related things at a certain time where i wind down and i think that's really important you know in this modern world that we live in very overstimulated. So there's a certain time around 8.30 at night where I, my clients know that I'm off unless it's an emergency client because I also work with mental health, but they know around 8.30 not to contact me. And it's just a great ritual. And actually, the funny thing is my, my wife is Swiss, actually, and um, she went to school in um, uh, near Bath. Uh, the name the name, the name's um, losing me right now, but she went to boarding school there. And, and basically she... Um, she had a ritual what her ritual was sleepy time tea at night so sleepy time tea celestial seasons with little teddy bears on there and the funny thing is when i met her i had the same ritual i also had sleepy time tea at night so our little ritual once the kids are in bed i have you know two children once the kids are in bed is we pour ourselves a sleepy time tea and we sit there and say okay the day is done now let's relax and it's a little ritual that's really really simple but it, to, to us it signifies let's wind down now let's wind down and, and have that nighttime ritual. So that's definitely one. Um, and the biggest one I could say is that I've adopted, and it was challenging at first, to be honest, and believe it or not, as a mindfulness coach and everything was actually to go to bed without my telephone by my bedside. Like it was actually challenging at first because I used it as my alarm clock. Mm-hmm. And then I, I realized that it wasn't just my alarm clock. I started checking things and all those sort of, so that was a, a ritual or a practice that I've got rid of. And, um, I swear by that one. That one's like the number one thing that you could do. Uh, so that's two. And then just my daily meditation practice, really. So that's that's a given and that's always there. So I have my morning practice, but I also have an afternoon practice, which to me separates work from home. So typically somewhere around five, six or seven-ish, I'll stop my day. I'll close my day mindfully. I say, okay, my, my work day's finished. And then I'll do a meditation practice. And that will be a shorter, usually about 10 minutes, but that really separates work from home. And then I'm fully present with the kids, 100% and yeah, I'm with them. And my children will look much more beautiful when I've done a practice. You know what I mean? It's like, because you can bring your stuff home. You can easily, you know, I'm working in mental health. I'm working in psychiatric clinics. I'm working with stressed out executives. I'm working and it's easy to bring that stuff home. So I don't want to do that. I want to leave it there and then come home and into the room. If I can't do it outside of being home, I'll actually come home and I'll go upstairs and I'll do it at home. But my children are trained to know that actually. So they know, they give me a kiss and everything, but then I'll go up and they see me go up and do meditation. So it's great to train the people around you of your practices also. So that was a long version of the three. Um, but um, I like yeah. it. So, yeah. Uh, the, the, the last question is, if you could spend one hour with anybody, dead or alive, who would that one person be? Oh, only one person. I said to somebody the other day, I'm glad I'm the one that asked this question rather than answer it because it's very difficult. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, I was going to say the Dalai Lama, but I've already mentioned him. So I'm going to go for David Attenborough. Mm. I'd love to sit with him and just hear about all his experiences around the planet. And um, yeah, definitely. I, I, we travel a lot and um, often there's wildlife involved in our travels, you mm. know, recently in Africa and up in Rwanda with the gorillas in Rwanda. So wildlife has always been a fascination to us. So I think, yeah, listen to his, how old is he these days? 90 odd? 93, 94, something like that. Yeah. Um, he said that in the time since he started broadcasting on TV, to now the world's population is more than doubled wow yeah growing, isn't it yeah so i'd love to hear his 93 years of experience yeah. and sit with him and often his message now on you know on his latest documentaries is he's really trying to save the planet i know and really being very vocal around that but i'd love to hear his earlier sort of stories so yeah that would be my that would be my choice lovely really really nice so before we disappear let everyone know um, where they can track you down if they want to learn more about what we've talked about or you know, maybe looking for some coaching and, and advice, where can they find you? Sure. Well, the, probably the easiest first point of call would be my website, which is, well, it's not an easy name. I'm not sure if you're going to put it in the, in the show notes, yeah, but melocalaco.com. That's M-E-L-O-C-A-L-A-R-C-O, melocalaco.com. Probably the best point of call. And I'm on all those social media channels. You can imagine Instagram and Facebook and um Probably my most active is LinkedIn. So that's probably three places to, to go there. And I, and I do offer, I have what's called a support package, a free mindfulness support package that I've been offering right now during this period. I actually created it at the beginning of COVID. So, you know, I'm happy to share that with the, with the crew too. And it's a, it's a great resource where there's a couple of free meditations in there. There's little video tips and some PDF handouts to basically like a mini course on how to get started. So I'm also happy to share that in the show notes if you like. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Thank you so much, Mello, for all of the time you've given. We've, we've gone a bit longer than we originally mm -hmm. intended, but that's what happens when it's a good conversation. Um, and I hope everybody got kind of a lot of uh, insight and maybe sparked something uh, in somebody today. So thank you very much for that. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation. If you enjoyed it and you'd like to hear more similar episodes, head over to pocketmastermind.com where you'll also find the links mentioned in this conversation. And if you haven't done so already, please leave us a review. It will really help us to get our message out and let more people know about these episodes. So leave us a review, leave us a rating, hit the subscribe button and please share with your friends. Until next time, thank you again for listening.